Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for this evening, for this time in fellowship and community. We pray, Lord, especially for the grace, the wisdom, the power that you offer us as we dive into your word tonight. You are always seeking to speak to us. You are always seeking to love us and help us to know your love. And so we pray tonight, Lord, that we would be ready and willing open and listening to receive whatever you have in store for us tonight. So we pray, Jesus, that you would bless and anoint this time. We lay it at your feet, and we ask that any distractions or worries that are plaguing us, that you would remove those things from our minds and hearts so that we could fully enter into conversation with one another, and especially with you this evening. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of this day, and we just ask for all of the ways that we are searching, all of the ways we are worried, anxious, tired, um, seeking that we would just offer those things to you, Lord, and entrust them to your most sacred heart and know that um, your heart is burning for us and it already has questions or answers to the questions that we have and solutions to the things we are seeking. And so we pray, Lord, that we would just receive them tonight. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come on in, join us. We are in Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 25. We'll be reading verses 25 through 30. So, uh, tonight's gospel, this is the gospel for this upcoming Sunday, the 14th Sunday in Ordinary Time. And if you recall, over the past few weeks... We've been talking uh, from the missionary discourse of Jesus. So he's been uh, instructing the disciples, this is how you are to go out into the world. This is what it means to be my disciple. This is what you should expect in terms of persecution. This is what it means to be hospitable and to receive hospitality. That was last week. And now we have this, we're kind of in this little middle ground between two of his big teaching discourses. So he's going to begin teaching some parables in a few chapters but chapter 11 of Matthew is all about the responses that people are having to Jesus. Some of them are positive. Some of them are kind of neutral. Like when you read the beginning of 11, when you're reading about John the Baptist and his, his apostle or his followers. And then some of them are markedly negative. And so we're kind of seeing after Jesus has given this big teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, he sent out missionaries, worried about who he is, has gotten around. We're starting to see all of these divisive responses about Jesus that he warned, that he said, you know, I'll divide mother against daughter and father against son. And like he said last week, if anyone loves mother or father more than me, he is not worthy of me. So Jesus is already experiencing now the responses to some of these difficult teachings. So we're going to read a section of this tonight. And it's important for you to know all that because after you hear about all these responses, negative and positive that people are having to Jesus, this is what Jesus chooses to kind of cap all that off with. Okay, so keep all that in mind. That's all that has been talked about. That's all that's been happening. Negative responses to Jesus, confusion about Jesus. How does Jesus respond? This section that we are about to read. 
Okay, so we're in Matthew 11, starting in verse 25. We're going to read this twice through. First time through, just get a picture for what is being said. Jesus is still in the region of Galilee, uh, teaching and responding to all the things that are going on. So it says in chapter 11 of Matthew, verse 25, At that time, Jesus said in reply, I give praise to you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, for although you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, you have revealed them to the childlike. Yes, Father, such has been your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wishes to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy and my burden light. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So some familiar verses that you've probably heard before. As we read this a second time, I invite you to listen very intently to the words as they are read. Try and remove now any of the images that you maybe have in your mind from your head and just kind of see if any particular word or phrase resonates with you or stands out to you for any reason. Something personal. doesn't have to be to theologically interpret the passage, but something that just grabs you like, oh, that detail is interesting or that reminds me of a memory or that really speaks to me personally. So listen for those particular things as we read through this second time. At that time, Jesus said in reply, I give praise to you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. For although you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, you have revealed them to the childlike. Yes, Father, such has been your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wishes to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy and my burden light. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you now to look back over this passage, the things that stood out to you, and to reflect on why. Why did these things resonate with you? And any questions that this reading poses in you, you're going to have about the next 10 minutes or so to share those things at the tables that you are at. If you're watching this later, let us know what stands out to you. But for those of us here, take about the next 10 minutes, share what stood out to you and why, what questions that you have, and then we'll bring it back to the larger group to answer those questions and to discuss further. So uh, I want to share a little bit more context about this passage. That um, So at this time, we've talked about many times before, we had this group of people called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were this teaching class of the Jews that were very much about enforcing the law, and not just the law that was in the Torah, 
but the laws that had developed over time. And these in, in Hebrew were called the halakha, which means the way. And these were beyond, far beyond all, I mean, there's 613 laws for the Jewish people to memorize and follow. And yet they added and added and added to them. And this happened as a result of, in the Old Testament, when the Jewish people were defying God after the kingdom of David and the kingdom of Solomon, these prophets were sent to warn them, if you don't turn back to God, if you don't stop worshiping false idols, then you're going to get wiped out and taken into exile. And that's why we have all the prophets in the Old Testament. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, all the minor prophets, they all were sent to try and warn people, come back to God or there are going to be consequences for your actions. God wasn't punishing them. He was trying to warn them that if you keep down this path, it's going to lead you to this place of destruction. So when they get taken into exile eventually into Babylon, the temple is destroyed and they're cut off from their way of worshiping and praying to God. And so what develops is this teaching class of Jews in exile that becomes the Pharisees because they no longer have their sacrificial way of worshiping. It all becomes about preserving the teaching. And so all of these extra rules start developing, these extra teachings, extra practices, they all become part of the halakha, the way of the Jewish people. And so you see in the Gospels, Jesus criticizes some of these, these laws that are sometimes called the traditions of the elders, like you have to ceremonially wash your hands before you eat food, even though that was only reserved for priests and Levites when they were offering sacrifices in the temple. They take these laws and they apply them all over the place um, for people, and they, they're extra scrutinous despite there being all of these laws in the first place. So when you were a disciple of a rabbi and you were learning how this rabbi was interpreting all of the laws, there was this phrase that you would take on that rabbi's yoke. So the rabbi's yoke was his teaching authority or his interpretation of the law. So if you're going to take on that yoke, it means like, I understand all of these things that you interpret from the law and I want to follow them. I'm taking that burden of interpretation upon myself. And so much of the yokes of these rabbis were not easy and light. They were burdensome, they were heavy, they were a lot to follow and memorize, and they were near impossible for anyone to follow faithfully all of the time. That was what people were used to. Okay, All of this extra burdensome, legalistic type of religious practice that weighed very heavily on the hearts and souls of people. And Jesus comes along. And he, even though people have all these expectations about who the Messiah is going to be, he defies, upsets, surpasses, and transforms their expectations. And he says, I'm not going to be like all of these people. You're expecting some grand kingly Messiah in the line of King David, in the line of all of these teachers like the rabbis that you look to so faithfully and you follow with all of these burdensome rules. I'm not going to be like that. I'm not going to be some political figure who's coming to give this very uh, overcomplicated, overscrupulous teaching. He upsets these expectations and he says, Come to me, all you who are labor and are burdened, and I will give you rest. All of these ways that religion of the time was weighing people down, oppressing them, and even marginalizing them, making them feel left out or oppressed or shunned from society if they couldn't be faithful to it. Jesus comes and says, if you're feeling that way, come to me. Take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I and meek and humble of heart. I'm not all about my stature, all about being some person to advance the teaching or the law or the political authority. I came to fulfill what was already in place. 
I didn't come to overcomplicate it. I came to simplify it and bring it back to the heart of what it was meant to teach in the first place. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's as simple as that. And so you'll hear this in the first reading this Sunday in Zechariah chapter 9. It's the prophecy about how the Messiah is going to be known. When he enters into Jerusalem, it says, Exult greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout for joy, O daughter Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. A just savior is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He comes with simplicity. He doesn't come like a valiant warrior riding on a steed. He comes on a humble animal of a servant, a pack animal, carrying the burdens of the people that animal serves. He rides on that animal into Jerusalem. And Jesus fulfills that prophecy on Palm Sunday. And he comes showing that he is the Messiah. But he's not the Messiah that people expected. Not a political figure. Not someone with a lot of power. Someone who's trying to assert his teaching authority like the Pharisees and overburden people with all these rules and all of these laws. He's getting to the heart of God, who is love. And he's preaching something simple and yet something that transforms our entire life if we really believe it and take it to heart. And that, for me at least, is the overarching kind of blanket or cover to this passage. Is that sometimes you and I, we overcomplicate Jesus. We overcomplicate religion. Sometimes you and I get too scrupulous or we get too focused on going through the motions and checking the boxes instead of really thinking about our relationship with God, our actual relationship with Jesus. You know, Father Patrick, I've heard him say many times, I don't know if he wants me to say this publicly, but I'm going to, he's not here, uh, he's on vacation. Uh, but he, he said many times um, that, that he believes, and I believe this too, if we just preach a relationship with Jesus, then we really wouldn't need most of the other ministries that we have because they would happen naturally. We would naturally be compelled to be good stewards, to serve the poor, to come together for Bible study, to do formation, to receive the sacraments. If we really just focused on the core of what it means to be Christian, of what it means to be Catholic, of what it means to follow him, and we were in intimate, deep, powerful, profound, transformative relationships with Jesus Christ, we understood how that radically changes our lives. It would compel us to do all of the things that all these ministries offer us. We would naturally do them. They would naturally spring up out of nowhere. And they're good, nonetheless. It's not like we're going to get rid of all of these, you know. So don't worry. But, but there, it, it, it would follow from a different kind of structure. It wouldn't be we're just going to do this because we think people need it and it's a good idea. People would naturally do it by themselves already. And that would just be what the community looked like. Because the core of it is simple. The burden of Jesus is not burdensome. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And it's about walking with him. One last thing on a yoke. You know, a yoke is a work of carpentry. Jesus was a carpenter. He would have known how to make a good yoke and what a bad yoke looked like. And you maybe have heard the phrase, it's often associated with marriage. If two people in, in a marriage, they need to be equally yoked. Because a yoke is a wooden beam that is fit around two necks of two cattle to, to pull a plow. And they have to be even or one cow is going to steer a little more in one direction and you're not going to plow straight lines. And it's going to ruin your entire field, your entire planting, your entire harvest. And you're going to look like there's, there's you know, wives' tales or historical legends or stories about like how idiotic farmers who couldn't, you know, have a proper yoke or work a plow, how idiotic they looked to other farmers. Like this was something that was like you needed to do this correctly. 
or you were considered like not even legitimate in trying to just like plant your crops and survive. And so Jesus would have known how to make a yoke. But what he's implying here is he's offering something that is not something that's independent. You know, if he's offering us a yoke, it's a two-person, a two-animal element. That You are not called to this faith life alone. You know, he sends the disciples out two by two. And even when we feel alone, we are never alone because Jesus is there equally yoked with us, walking with us. And he's not going to take so much of the burden that we don't have to do anything, but he's not going to put so much on us that he's not also walking with us and pulling us to places that we couldn't go on our own. So this this reading is also an invitation in that that reality that Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. Are we having the openness to invite him into our lives and to walk with him, to allow him to press us on? And when we can't go to allow him to take that burden on himself and that weight continues to feel as though it's equally distributed so we can keep going forward. That is what he offers us. That is the burdenless reality of following Jesus. It doesn't mean it's not difficult, but it's not this oppressive weight that makes us feel like I have to be a certain way in order to be a Christian. You know, I can't mess up. I can't make a mistake. No one can know that I am weak. I can't appear to be hypocritical in any way. No, we are all broken and burdened and messy, and we all need someone with us in that yoke or it just doesn't work. We're going to look like we're doing something completely idiotic out there on that field, ruining this harvest that Jesus promises all of us to reap. Are we allowing him to walk with us? And are we following his direction or are we trying to steer in the situation where we need to be equally yoked or we need to be willing to journey with Jesus and follow where he is leading? So with that being said, What are the things that resonate with you about that, about this passage, questions that you have uh, from your discussions or from the reading? Margo. It kind of goes along with what you were saying. The thing that stood out to me was the same thing, but I I kind of argued with, oh, it's easy in life because life isn't, and it's not always easy Mm -hmm. following, and it's difficult. So if you're saying it's my yoke is easy, I'm sorry, I don't. Well, so if a yoke was a one-person yoke, yes, you're right. It would be terribly difficult. But the attitude of a Christian is that, yes, life is difficult, but if we are yoked, Jesus is with us. And in that, anything can become easy. It doesn't mean it's without difficulty or hardship or without effort. In fact, like, for, like I, I hate the phrase, uh, God can't give you, God won't give you anything that you can't handle. That makes, it's just not biblical. It doesn't make any sense. Okay, you read 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Like, no, no trial has come to you but what is human. But whatever happens to you, God will provide the way out. It's not your effort. It's not your effort that provides the way out. It's God. And so the correct phrase would be, God will never give you anything more than you can handle without him. If we try and do it on our own, yes, it's completely burdensome, difficult. And all we see is the pain and the suffering and the worry. But if he is with us, it transforms it into something that we can, we can be powered through. We can be accompanied through. It doesn't change the fact that it's hard or that it's difficult. But with Jesus, it becomes easy. It becomes lighter. And when we look at the idea of what religion is supposed to be, if we have this idea that it's like all of this stuff is expected of me and I have to do all of these things to achieve holiness, no, that's burdensome. 
We can't achieve holiness. We can't save ourselves. That's only something that Jesus offers us as a free gift. And so in that, all we do is respond. And that is burdenless. That is easy. Now, living that out is challenging, but that's because we have a yoke that has two spots in it, us and the Lord. And when we stand in that yoke and allow him to stand with us, whatever we face, that is when it remains easy. But it's a matter of perspective. Gia. Um, can you explain, for although you have um, hidden these things from the wise and the learned, you have revealed them to the childlike? Yes. Yeah, it was the same question. Yeah. So it kind of relates to the phrase down here, for I am meek and humble of heart. The word there for humble is, it can also be translated as lowly. That oftentimes the, the higher we think that we are, the more important we think that we are, the more um, you know, established, the holier we think we are of our own accord, uh, we get caught up in kind of this self-idolatry. We're not really worshiping God, we're worshiping this idea of the self. And so when we're in that position, we're not worshiping God. We're not listening to him. We're listening to ourselves. We're kind of building up this image of ourselves. This is what it means to be holy. I can do this on my own. Look how great I am. And so it's not that God isn't trying to reveal these things to those people who profess themselves to be wise. It's that they are not receiving it. They can't even hear it because all they're listening to is themselves. All they're pursuing is their own efforts. But when you are childlike, when you are lowly, you have this sense of all I can do is depend on the direction of the people that take care of me. And that's the attitude of a Christian. All I can do in my life is have the attitude of dependency on the only one who can take care of me and who knows everything that's going to happen. And when I have that attitude, I'm always receptive to listening to his direction because otherwise I don't know what to do. You know, if I go if, tomorrow night, if it's dinner time, and I say, all right, Hannah, go ahead and cook something for us on the oven, and she's never had any instruction whatsoever, she's going to be like, what are you talking about? Like, she's just going to laugh because she knows it's a joke. She knows she's incapable of doing that at her age because she is lowly, she is childlike, she is not at the level of understanding how to provide for what she needs. And that's a permanent reality for us as Christians. We don't understand. We have no ability to fully grasp the mystery of this life, to know what will come of our life. But we know the one who does. And if we profess that we have all this wisdom and we have it all figured out and we're trying to you know, hustle and get our life together and we can do this by our own fruition, by our own achievement, eventually we're going to reach something we can't overcome. We're going to have burdens that are collected that are too much for us to bear. We're not going to be able to keep up the facade that we have it all together anymore, and we're going to crumble and collapse. That's why people out there in the world who seem as though they have everything, all this money, all this success, they still struggle with intense depression and mental illness, loneliness, isolation, feelings like they're not worthy, feelings like they're not fulfilled, satisfied, or happy. That's because it's not about those things. It's only when we allow ourselves to approach God as children lowly, that we understand the wisdom he's revealing. But if we think we're already wise unto ourselves, then we're not going to hear it when he offers it. We're going to think we know better. Gage. Can you speak to more on that idea of kind of this like modern, I guess, like Pelagianism? As, as sure. If you could, you know, maybe define that term for me. Yes. And then actually talk about how do we how do we actually address that as as like in our spiritual lives? So yes. That's something that I really struggle with. Sure. And you don't at the same time want to become lax yeah. and not put in effort. Yeah. 
Yeah, so uh, if you don't know, Pelagius was a heretic in the early church, and he's associated with this heresy uh, that has to do with salvation or justification, that essentially you could earn your way to heaven by doing good works. That's a very layman's way of, 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 uh, of, play, of putting it. And Pope Francis has written in a lot of his recent documents and, and encyclicals that there is a threat of modern Pelagianism, that this heresy is coming back, that we have this idea, especially in a Western context, that we of our own accord could kind of you know, the, the manifest destiny, pick ourselves up spiritually by the bootstraps. We can achieve this on our own. We can earn our way to heaven and we can earn our salvation. If you do all the holy things, you check all the holy boxes, then, then you'll get there. And, and what Gage is speaking to is this kind of juxtaposition between, well, we do need to put in effort, but how do we not get caught up or scrupulous in such a way that it becomes about, look, God, at all the things that I'm doing. And we think somehow I can earn God's love or I can make him love me more, or I can somehow look around at other people and say like, well, I'm definitely saved because of all that I'm doing, but that person isn't doing enough. And we can get, you know, there's all, all these different ways we can get caught up in this. Um, and I think there's a lot of ways to, that we can separate ourselves from that. Part of it is having this attitude of humility, this attitude of being childlike, this attitude of dependence on God. Um, sometimes it's, it has, I think, how do I put this? To think of the things that we commit to in the negative rather than the positive. So what I mean is, a lot of times when we're trying to grow in the spiritual life, we add stuff to our plate. And in the spiritual tradition, what most of like the desert fathers and mothers and hermits and you know, holy people, what they actually tell you to do is less, lessen what you are involved in. Let go. Let go of your material possessions fast. Spend time in silence and contemplation. Get away from all of these trappings and attachments of the world. And in all of that, we end up becoming more lowly, right? When we detach from all these things, like, look, look at all this stuff that I have. It's reminding me of the old show MTV Cribs, you know, like, you know, like, come check out my crib. Look at all this stuff I have, you know. And a lot of times we get this mentality, like, we have this spiritual crib that we have, like, built for ourselves. And look how holy I am. Look how many times I've been to Mass. Oh, yeah, I was just a confession last week. You know, we're showing off this thing as if it's going to save us. And in reality, like, we just kind of need to sell all that junk move out of that house and just kind of camp out for a while and recognize like we're completely and utterly dependent upon God for everything. And so it doesn't mean we stop doing those spiritual things, but we recognize if we want to seek to grow holier, it's not necessarily about adding a bunch of stuff to our spiritual plate. That's a way that we can very easily make the yoke heavier upon ourselves and do things that God maybe isn't necessarily asking of us. Most of what we're called to do in the spiritual life is to let go of, to have less than, to identify with the poor, to give things away, to fast from things, to say no, rather than committing to all of these extra things. It's good to do that if you feel called to, but I think having what, what I would call maybe a negative attitude toward commitment, not in, a, in a, you know, a pessimistic way, but like what can I get rid of versus what can I add on? And then lastly, the thing that I'm thinking of is um, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas. I can't remember, well, I'm thinking of two things. So St. Thomas Aquinas he, he once summarized, like, so he wrote the Summa Theologica, which is 4,000 pages. It's the most, probably still to this day, the biggest masterwork on, on systematic theology that has ever existed. And it's so detailed and so thorough in this question and answer format, so scholastic. And yet he was once asked, or he summarized basically the Christian life in this way. He said, all that you need to know is in the creed. All that you need to do is in the Ten Commandments. And all that you need to pray and hope for is in the Our Father. Like the guy who did all of this masterwork 
And at the end of his life, when he, toward the end of his life, when he had this very mystical experience of Jesus Christ, he said, all that I have done, it amounts to but straw. It's nothing. It's nothing in comparison to Jesus Christ. And he summarizes it that succinctly. Uh, Karl Barth, this is the other thing I was thinking of. He's a, he's a very famous Protestant theologian, relatively modern guy. I don't think he's alive anymore. Um, I think he's from like the 19th century but, uh, or 20th century. But anyway, he was asked toward the end of his tenure at uh, the place where he taught, he was asked by uh, a journalist or one of his students, uh, what was the most profoundest idea that you've ever had? And this very verbose, very you know, intellectually well-established Protestant theologian uh, immediately said, Jesus loves me. That was it. Of all the profound, incredibly verbose things that he could say, that's how he simplified. The most profound idea that he had ever had or come to the realization of was that Jesus loved him. That was it. So to return to the simple. When we return to the simple, and it's not about all of these actions, when we recognize that relationship, it transforms everything. So I've said this before, but it's this idea that you don't need to change in order for God to love you, but God's love will change you. So if you allow God, that love of God, to really seep into where you are now, to receive it, to accept it, it can transform everything. But if we're acting like God's love is this thing at the top of a mountain that I have to work toward with all these holy acts and I'm striving and I'm doing this by my own will and my own achievement, then it's going to seem like this distant thing that we can only achieve if we're holier and holier and we have the best spiritual resume possible. And that's just not what the spiritual life is about. That's what the devil wants us to believe. It's all about the things that you do. And the second there's a little chink in that armor, the second that you make one misstep, you're falling down the hill and you're all the way back at the beginning. So religion can be a very good force for the enemy to get into our head. We have to be very cognizant of that. Great question, Gage. Thank you. Yeah? On that note, how do you avoid when you're walking the path that you described, especially in this very literate, information-accessible society that we live in, how do you avoid making our faith, this is a trap I fall into, just a big master's degree in theology? How much can you learn? How many saints can you cite? How many books have you read sure. to pull from in conversation and throw like darts at people? You know, when they ask you a question about something, and I found that that's a big temptation to me, is I just need to know more things. And if yeah. I know more things, if I can read more books, if I can do this and do that, I'm doing better, especially with, you know, for instance, if you're called to be a parent one day, the obligation not to teach things to your kids. So sure. Where do you draw that line between I want to let go of things, but I want to be responsible. I want to know things. I guess that's why the catechism exists, but even that doesn't answer any question. You know, yeah. I mean? like there is a real push and pull there to grasp for more knowledge, but not let it consume you somehow. Yeah. I mean, we want to know about the things that we care about. We want, to, we want to know information about the people and the things that we fall in love with. And so the question needs to be, what is this for? What am I really looking for? You know, and so as you were sharing, I was thinking about like, if I'm in a relationship, I can stalk this person on Instagram or I can ask them this information about them in the context of sitting with them and having coffee. And it's driving me toward deeper relationship and intimacy with them. You know, there are, you know, if I'm every morning like asking my wife a bunch of trivial questions like, what's your blood type again? And like, you know, what do you think about Oreos? Or, you know, like just things that like don't matter in the grand scheme of things. And I'm just memorizing this information and telling myself, if I learn all this information about my wife, I'm suddenly close to her. It paints a very easy to, to denote picture of like, this isn't really like a close relationship, you know? So always thinking about it in the context of relationship. 
if it were a real relationship, would this be like overkill stalker mode or am I like actually in face-to-face -face relationship with this person? And then whenever you're doing any kind of spiritual act, what is the end? What is this for? What am I really looking for? Am I looking for the accolade of being able to quote and have this information? Can I enjoy a spiritual book without highlighting someplace to go back to and quote to someone later? Is it for my own edification or is it so that I can quote it for someone else? Because I find every time I've read a spiritual book and I've underlined it like, ooh, that's going to be so good to say later, I can never find it again. And it's impossible for me to memorize those things. Even if it's like a sentence, I'm like, that is the best thing I've ever read. I can't wait to use it in a talk. It never stays up here for some reason. It's like a gift of the Holy Spirit to remind me like, this is not about how much you know. If it's driving me into deeper relationship with Jesus, it sinks deeply. And when I can share relationship with others, it comes out naturally because it's a part of that relationship. Other questions, reflections, what stands out to you? Chrissy. Sometimes this wording just gets a little bit tricky for me, like I give praise to you, Father, and I know that Jesus came humbly and as a servant, but even in the context of only the Father knows the hour of the end of the world, I don't. Like, mm -hmm. I'm trying to reconcile, like, they're both fully God. Yes. So with my own earthly father, I would never say I praise you, Father. I would say I honor you. I love you. Mm -hmm. But I just wonder why sometimes Jesus uses that wording as though there's like a deference. Yes. Like not as much God as the yeah. No, it's a great question. It's kind of one of the nuances of the mystery of the Trinity. So uh, both are fully God, but only Jesus is also fully man. And when we experience these, these things that, that are like assaults in one sense to Jesus's divinity, like why is he doing this? That's often a window into his humanity. Not to show that he is weak, but to be an example for us who are also humans on how we are to approach the Father. So Jesus does these things, or he told someone that he did them in secret so that they would be teaching tools for us. So one of the reasons for the incarnation, listen in the catechism, there's four reasons. One of them is to show us how to live. And so when we have these windows into Jesus' humanity, it's an example for us. This is how I am to approach God as Father, to give him praise. It doesn't demote Jesus. It's a window into his humanity so that we can be elevated higher and closer in relationship with God. So only like both are fully God, but the difference in the persons of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit is they have unique characteristics, whereas God, Jesus, is fully God and fully man. Humanity does exist in some capacity in, the, in God the Father, the Creator, because he makes us in his, in his own image and likeness. But that hasn't been realized theologically in the same way it's been realized when we describe Jesus, who has a divine nature, a human nature, a divine will, and a human will. And all of those are acting in collaboration with one another. One does not surpass the other, but we see windows into each, which is why there's sometimes an apparent tension between the two, because we are not divine. So when we see things in someone who's supposed to be divine that are very human, we get confused. You know, but it's really an example to us. When we see Jesus doing something that doesn't seem very divine, it's really him telling us, this is how you're supposed to approach the divine. Yeah, great question. Other things standing out to you? Other questions you have? Greg? The fact that uh, the yoke is easy and keeping things simple reminds me of uh, an interview years ago that I read it with uh, Mahatma Gandhi before mm -hmm. he was assassinated. And he was like known all over the world, had an Hindu 
Hindu religion and all of that. But in the end, he said, he looks at the untouchables, which of course, you know, Sanefada, anybody in Indian society with a caste system, you don't go anywhere near people like that. Mm -hmm. they're, like, they're like lepers sociologically. Yeah. But he said that he was struggling to get to their level because mm -hmm. he saw their joy and their simplicity. And it just strikes me because the fact that he's not Christian, he doesn't follow the same God that we do. But in so many ways, what he believed in some ways is very similar to what we do as far as how the importance of how one's supposed to live their life and what's important in one's life. Yeah. Well, there's a famous story of Gandhi, and I believe there's a statue of him there. He went to Oxford uh, for a short time, and while he was there, he was exposed to the teachings of Christianity, particularly the Sermon on the Mount, and it captured him in such a way, he vowed to take that message back to India, and it informed his entire ministry of what he did in the context of Hinduism. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, I mean, there's things about Hinduism and Eastern religions that are very antithetical to the Christian worldview, but in the similarities he brought back, we see a lot of this type of language. A lot of the Sermon on the Mount type of language being realized just in a different cultural context. So, Jesse, you yeah. said that he was struggling to reach their level. Mm. Not that, okay, they're down here, they don't have anything, they're groveling in the dirt with their little huts or whatever. Yeah. But he was struggling to get, he had a hard time mm. trying to get down to their level of simplicity of how they were living and thinking in their lives. It just struck me so much. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. The word humility or the word humiliation comes from the root word in Greek, humus, which means ground. To be grounded, to be low, to literally be sitting on the earth. So when Paul is knocked down on the road to Damascus, you know, his name Saul in Hebrew, he begins going by his Greek name, Paulus, which means small or humble, because he's literally knocked down. He literally becomes humbled. And that's the interesting thing about this language here. And this doesn't mean that Jesus is, you know, the word here, for I am meek. We often translate that as like gentle or uh, unaggressive or even people who might be easily walked over. And this word in Greek does not mean that. The word in Greek is praus. And praus was a term that you would use if you were to tame a wild horse. You would praus the horse, which you would take the power of the stallion and you would bring it under control. That's what that word means in Greek. And so for someone to be meek, it means that their power is under control. It doesn't mean they are powerless. It doesn't mean that they are weak. It means that they are choosing how, when, and where to assert their power, if at all. And so when we look at Jesus on the cross, we do not see a weak victim. We see a powerful Savior who did intentionally lead himself to that death for us, willingly submitted himself to it for our salvation. He took the power the power of divinity that created the cosmos, confined it in a man and allowed himself to appear as though he were dead. And then at the proper time, allowed that power under control to be released in the resurrection to show us he really is who he says he was. And in our world, that's not really a concept that we understand. It's not something that's really praised. You know, if you have power, it's usually lorded over others. You know, the idea of having self-control in an overindulgent world where you can, at the tap of any button on an app, you can get anything you want delivered to your door if you have the right amount of money. Like, that's not really something that we have a concept of. And that's why living the Christian walk is so anti-cultural or so against the cultural norm that we will always stand out. And if we're not standing out, then we're probably not doing it right. And it's not because we're not overcomplicating it and making it harder than it needs to be. 
It's because the world overcomplicates all these ways we can get twisted and caught up in sin. And the simple life is to let go of all of that. There's this great story. Um, oh man, I can't remember the name of it, but it's a child's book. My daughter has it. And it's a story. It's like all these puppets, like marionettes, very Geppetto and Pinocchio-esque type of story, but that's not what it's called. Punchinello. Anyone know this story? Story Punchinello. And Punchinello, he's this puppet that lives in this world where everybody gives each other these gold stars or these black dots. And if you're not like, you know, really like good or wonderful, or you do something silly, you humiliate yourself, all the other puppets come and they put these black dots and they stick to you. But if you're really like the, the best puppet and you're doing all these great things that come and they put these gold stars on you and you're loved and adored by everyone. And then Punchinello, he's getting all these black dots. He's kind of a misfit puppet. And he encounters this girl and she has no stickers on her. And she just seems like so incredibly joyful. And she, he, in the course of their conversation, you know, some people pass by and they go to put a sticker on her and, and uh, the sticker falls off. It doesn't stick to her. A good one, a bad one, whatever it is, it won't stick to her. And he's so compelled. He's like, why, how did this happen? Like, why are you like this? And she said, well, I went and visited the master, the puppet maker. And she introduces him to the master. So this whole allegory of God creating us. And when we put that idea of our own achievement or what other people think of us, we let that be a high priority in our life. Those things stick to us. We define ourselves by them. But if we draw back and we're just simply like, what's the word? Living our lives by just the humble principle of like, I am who God created to me and I need to be and I don't care what anyone else says about it. Those things don't stick to us. We have a rightly ordered understanding of who we are and who we were created to be. It becomes simple. It becomes simple. And we see the complication with everything else. All these other ways that people live their lives and are wrapped up in distortions of sin doesn't mean we won't struggle. But the less and less we are inclined to care what other people think the more we are going to be able to live this simple life. That's why I think we're, we're coming to a place more and more, like exponentially more quickly, where like in order to live like a mentally healthy life, people are realizing like, I am not going to be able to be on social media. Because social media is all directed toward, do you like me? Because <laughs> you can physically tell me by pressing like. You can give me the gold star, or you can put a black dot in the comments. Like that's all it's about. It's not just about like, I'm, I'm going to live in such a way where I'm celebrating who I am online. No, anyone, anywhere in the world, anonymously, with a mask or, or, or personally, can comment on your life. And it just compels us to take those things more and more to heart, to take them more seriously, and to allow our lives to be dictated by the opinions of other people, rather than by the opinions of the only one who knows who we were created to be and what we were created for. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. It's not weighed down by the opinions of others. It's not weighed down by these expectations and this long spiritual resume that we're all expected to fulfill. No, you do not need to change in order for God to love you. When you receive and accept and recognize the transformational nature of that love and his desire to be in relationship with you right now as you are, that will change you. It will compel you to do everything else, to let go of all these things, to live a life of simplicity, to come to God as a child dependent upon him, and to recognize he will lead you everywhere you need to go. He will provide everything that you need. And nowhere else, no person, no job, no relationship, no achievement, no amount of money will give you that sense of fulfillment. And even if it does for a moment, it won't last. That really is the beauty of this message, of this passage this week. I am meek and humble of heart. 
Come find rest for yourselves, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You want to know the really funny thing about that phrase? My yoke is easy. The word Greek, so the word for Messiah in Greek is Christos. Christos, Christ. It's where we get the word Christ. The word for easy in Greek is Christos. One letter difference. It's an E instead of an I. It's like Jesus is alluding, he's just simply poking here that like the way of the Messiah The person you've all been expecting and anticipating, everything that you've been looking to for your fulfillment, finally bringing back all of this historical oppression into fruition, into something beautiful, all that you've been expecting, I'm here. And guess what? It's easier than you thought. But it's also completely different than you thought. And that's what's going to make it really challenging. The choice is difficult. But when we live in that choice, and we allow Jesus to walk with us as the other person in that yoke, that is when it becomes easy. Even if we face trial and burdens and persecution and suffering and pain and death, grief, loss, sorrow, all of those things, if Jesus is walking with us in them, and he always is, when we recognize that and allow him to, it becomes easier. Let's pray. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And this Christian life, as challenging as it can be at times, at its heart is simple. It's a simple direction of the heart to you, Lord. And even though that choice to follow you has its challenges, it's ultimately not complicated. We overcomplicate it. And so help us, Lord, this week to really recognize the areas you're calling us to simplify our life, to not get over-scrupulous or caught up in the opinions of others or how we are perceived by others and our holiness and our devotion, but to really get to the heart of our relationship with you. Do we recognize how much you love us? Do we love you truly in, in return? And do we act like it? Do we do the things that we, do, we would do in any other loving relationship? Do we spend time with you? We pray, Lord, that you would give us the ability to be honest with ourselves that you would convict us, that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us to inspire us and to notice the places where growth is needed, where we need maybe to take a step back, where we need to let go, where we need to simplify, but to recognize at all times that you are with us and that you make all burdens light. You make all things easier. doesn't mean that it won't be challenging, but with you with us, all things are possible. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you for this time and this community. We ask that you bless us each in the ways that we most need it until we gather once again. And we pray all these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.